friends. Welcome to the latest episode of the Shift Talk podcast. I am one of your three hosts, Matthew. It's just me today. Uh, we're going to have a super quick intro here because we are covering Interstellar today, and we thought that because it was a bit on the lengthy side as far as runtime goes, that we decided to forego an opening segment, and we're just going to get straight into the review this week because we do have a lot to say about this film and a lot to get into. So without further ado, the review is going to go ahead and start in just a second. I just want to go ahead and thank you for all the support. Um, the numbers have been great as far as listeners goes. Uh, so we really do appreciate that. But without further ado, here is your spoiler-filled review for Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. We hope you enjoy. All right, so for this week's movie, it was Matthew's pick, uh, Christopher Nolan's sci-fi epic, Interstellar. We're going to get into it. We're about to go over some of the story and the characters. Um, pretty excited to talk about Christopher Nolan because I feel like we've kind of, of all the kind of big directors of like right now who kind of blew up like in the 90s and early 2000s, we've kind of talked about almost all of them except for Tarantino and Nolan. So now we're finally talking about Nolan. Um but yeah, so this is Interstellar. This was his big movie that came after his Dark Knight trilogy. Essentially, it's um, it takes place in the future, and it's it's pretty dystopian. Essentially, the environment has kind of gotten to a point where it's almost inhabitable for humans. There's a lot of dust bowls. Um, there's not really a use for a lot of modern technology anymore. We've kind of regressed back into agriculture and we're relying on farmers now to kind of keep everyone fed with crops and, and other stuff like that. It never really goes into, I, I'm pretty sure it never really goes into why it's just kind of assumed that we've just hit an environmental crisis. Um, but Matthew McConaughey's character Cooper was a former NASA pilot who is now a farmer and he stumbles upon an underground NASA base that's actually still operating. And he pretty much meets this professor named Brand, who's a NASA physicist played by Michael Caine, who pretty much lets him know that Earth is about to finally become actually inhabitable, uh, inhabitable for humans and that people are about to die. The, the end of humanity on Earth is approaching pretty fast. It's like a generation or two away. And he pretty much has this plan for Cooper and a bunch of other NASA scientists to travel through a wormhole near Saturn. I'm pretty sure it was Saturn to get to another galaxy because they there are three potential planets that could inhabit human life. And they're pretty much trying to get to these planets and figure out if um, these planets can uh, hold human life. But the issue with Cooper is that he has a family. He has a daughter and a son who he loves dearly. And he doesn't want to leave them, but he, he goes on this mission in order to save them. But as the film gets on, and we'll start talking about it, because physics and time plays a big part into this film, it becomes like the ultimate race against the clock because he's having to find find a planet that is habitable for Earth, or, her, I'm sorry, habitable for humans, and then get back to Earth and get his family and bring them to whatever planet 
And when, you know, we start playing around with space time and relativity, uh, it starts to really become a, a pretty big pressing issue for Cooper. But that's pretty much all we can say in terms of just a basic plot synopsis. So I guess we'll start really getting into the story and some of the characters. What did y'all think about the story? Because it's a pretty big story. I mean, this movie is almost three hours. It's like 10 minutes away from being three hours. So it might sound simple, or maybe that didn't sound simple, but it, it is a lot to talk about. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that on this rewatch, I think this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen this movie. Um, you know, a lot. I don't typically rewatch things that often, but this week's pick was definitely inspired a lot by my wife. This is easily one of her favorite movies. She always wants to watch it. And I think on this watch, I definitely didn't feel as bogged down by the plot as I did like on my second and third, you know, viewings. I feel like on this time, I kind of, I think that there's enough stopping points where Nolan chooses to have the characters really lay out the exposition and the plot here, but it doesn't feel like it, at every point, some points are better than others. It, it doesn't always feel like they're force feeding you or making you feel stupid. Um, so I think it's paced pretty well for a almost three hour movie. Uh, there's a couple of you know, places I could nitpick here and there when, when I'm sure we'll touch on those when we get to the actual plot points. But I think really the movie with the content that it gets into, the only time that I really feel like it kind of hurts itself in terms of how much time is being devoted to a certain concept or a plot element is towards the end. And I think, you know, you guys both know at the point that I'm speaking of, which we do have spoiler tags on all of our reviews. So, I mean, basically I think the movie is paced pretty well and the story is told in a way that, pretty much everybody can understand even though we're dealing with, you know, the concept of relativity and space time and wormholes and, you know, basically time travel. Um, so the really the only part that I don't think works for me as far as pacing goes is towards the end. Once, you know, Cooper goes through the wormhole with TARS. Uh, I think it is kind of rushed in that, in that aspect. But other than that, I mean, the story to me is epic. Uh, all the characters are great to me. I think there's compelling emotional moments, and I just think it, it really does work as a you know big time Hollywood blockbuster type movie. I, de I definitely don't think it um, shies away from that, and it it works really well for me. Jake, what do you think? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I don't like I said the pacing. Like you said, the pacing's fine. Um, it never it's never slow, but my main problems with the movie also come in the, you know, the the third act. You know, we haven't really brought it up yet, but you know, the whole the whole plot's kind of driven by uh, Murph's ghost. And to me, the payoff for that uh part of the story is just it doesn't it just doesn't work for me. Um I don't know. I mean I don't really have any I guess good reasons. It just I remember watching this movie for the first time and being disappointed by it. You know, that final payoff, the final twist. Um, and even after multiple rewatches, I still feel that little bit of disappointment um, in that aspect. And I, I, I love this movie. It's a movie that for me is very, very rewatchable. Anytime it's on TV, um, I usually tune in and watch whatever part it's at. I mean, 
I very much enjoy the movie, but I, I do think it's flawed. Um, another thing I don't really don't really like about the movie is uh, the introduction of Doctor Man and Matt Damon's character. Uh, that's never that part's never really worked for me either. Uh, and I feel like I'm just kind of harping on the negatives, uh, but those are just the two main things that stand out to me when I think about this movie. That I feel like it was really close to like being like amazing and then it gets bogged down right there at the end and like you said i guess bogged down is the wrong word it kind of rushes to its conclusion which you know it's it's three hours long so you know they couldn't really afford to stretch that out but you know i think there's probably parts and earlier in the movie that maybe could have been cut so to give us more uh give them more breathing room to you know provide a satisfying conclusion and I, I don't mean to say that like uh, like you're just totally disappointed by the movie or the ending, but I don't know. I just feel like I wanted more from it. Each time I watch it, I, I just find myself just a little bit disappointed. And I don't know how you guys feel about that. Uh, I'm interested to see what you guys think about the you know you know the kind of the Murph's ghost that kind of drives the plot along. You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because I personally, that payoff to me, I mean, the first time you watch it or the first time I watched it, I I thought it was great. Um, I definitely think that the more you rewatch it, it kind of, I mean, it becomes less profound, I guess. I mean, but that part never really bothers me. I think I think the thing that I always stick with is whenever you introduce the concept of like a time paradox into a film, like it's just so hard for me to like the first time I watch a movie that involves something like that. I mean, there's not like a ton of examples, but for this movie specifically, you know, I think it's just hard for me personally to, to be invested when the excuse or the plot device you're giving me is a, a time paradox that the fact that, the plot was initiated by a character's actions in the future. You know, those type of things, while they are creative and fun um, and make for very entertaining movies, I think, and this movie is extremely entertaining and fun to watch. um, I think from a plot perspective, it just kind of, I know it's, I know we're not meant to understand it. And I know the point of the paradox is that it's cyclical and it's supposed to, you know, reinforce itself on both ends. But at the same time for me, I think that's where it loses me a little bit. Um, but I think the emotional payoff is good. I mean, I think the, uh, I think Cooper being her ghost definitely works from a thematic standpoint. Uh, so there, you know, not too many complaints there. And the other point you mentioned about Matt Damon's character. Yeah, it's, it does. There's a big shift. I mean, kind of, it's a weird place to have such a big actor. I think that's kind of what jars me when I watch it or when I watched it for the first time is we're two out, we're over two hours into this movie. And then we see Matt, a character played by Matt Damon. And, and they were so secretive about his appearance in the movie. I mean, right. I remember there was, I mean, there was a big like build up about, you know, when the reviews first started coming out there, people were making a big deal about this character that shows up at the end, but they weren't even allowed to, you know, say what actors were actually in the movie. That's true. I think on multiple rewatches, his his characters, like little, you know, you know, evil space plot. I, I think 
on multiple rewatches, that to me becomes a little more interesting just on watching his character and just listening to how his character speaks from the very beginning. I think knowing that knowing that he's going to turn on them kind of makes it a little better in a way because I think the first time you watch it, I don't know. It, it to me it wasn't really that shocking uh, the first time you watch it, but on multiple rewatches, I think that slightly gets better. And and just to kind of sum up and let Cruz give his two cents, um, I I definitely think you're right. I mean the negatives the negatives are fewer and far between in this movie, and I feel like it's perfectly fair to say that. It doesn't hit that, you know, kind of home run ending, and it's hard to say. It's hard to say that and not be able to come up with and say like, well, this should have happened because I think when you're talking about a movie going from a great movie to possibly like an all time, just you know, an all time movie that people always go back to and revisit and consider one of the greatest of all time, I feel like there's a certain level you have to hit, and maybe a certain level of profoundness that you have to hit. Um, I think that one of the, if I was going to call it a complaint, in a movie as grand and as complex as this, where they're dealing with certain types of topics, I think it almost answers too much. Maybe, maybe that's what it is for me. I think with movies like this, there needs to be like slightly more ambiguity in, and we've seen that from Nolan in his other films. I mean, he definitely loves playing with, you know, ambiguous endings or at least endings that you can take multiple um, things from. And I think in this case, the subject matter gets extremely deep and gets extremely complex, and we almost get, we almost get it explained to us too much. And on multiple, re- multiple viewings, I think that's the one thing I keep kind of coming back to uh, as far as one of my only big complaints. But uh, Cruz, your thoughts? Um, yeah. Well... I do love this, I I love this movie. I'm a I'm a fan of Nolan. I wouldn't I wouldn't say I probably wouldn't say I'm a Nolanite like his diehard fans or anything like that because I do think his movies flawed. I think this movie's flawed too. Um, I'll probably get into my flaws more when we get to the themes because the themes is really where I really have just one big issue. Even now, the more I sit with it, it's kind of a nitpick. I'm kind of kicking myself on how I feel about this movie. I do love this movie. I'm trying to figure out if I love this movie or if I like absolutely adore this movie. There's a lot of great things in this movie. I agree with Matthew that the pacing is fantastic. Um, it's never boring for a movie that's three hours. I could put it on right now and watch it and have no problem. It's a really intriguing story. Uh, I like I like kind of the idea that have this really big epic about saving humanity. Really, that's just kind of a backdrop to a much more personal, intimate story about a guy trying to basically do right by his kids and give his kids a future. Um, but as for the characters and stuff, I mean, I, I dug the characters... I uh, loved the performances. I think Matthew McConaughey gives one of his best performances. I still think his best is True Detective, but I think this is up there as one of his best. Sure. Um, Everyone's great. I forgot that Timothy Chalamet was in this movie. His son. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is a difficult movie for me because there are flaws in the movie that I do kind of notice, but I love space movies. And there's a lot of kind of philosophical stuff in this film that I'm sure we'll talk about in the in the themes that I really enjoy. And I'm also really a fan of physics. I don't understand physics very well at all, but I try to because I find it so interesting. It ends up going over my head, so I'm not going to act like I know physics, but always go back because I find physics interesting. I don't know. This is kind of one of those movies where it's easier for me to ignore the kind of glaring flaws in this movie just because it has so much stuff that I love and I think it's done really well. Um. Like I said, I do have issues with the movie, but I think that's more of when we get to the themes. But as of right now, I, I don't really have too much to say other than I dig the story and I I like all the characters. And huh, that's all I really got to say right now. And I think yeah. the movie was great. That's well, fine. And I wanted to I wanted to clarify too. I, I absolutely love this movie. I think I just Sometimes with movies that I really like, the negatives are honestly the, some of the first things I do think about because they're kind of few and far between. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I absolutely love this movie, and you're right. I could probably put it on right now and, and sit through the whole thing again, um, having just watched it yesterday. But uh, Jake, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was. You know, I, I'm kind of the same way as you, Cruz. I, I love the, I love relativity and all like the physics aspects, and I I, I don't understand it either. But I'm still very interested in it. And so I guess it's the main reason that I can always watch this movie and like I just always enjoy it and try to, you know, understand those aspects a little bit better. But it's also one of the problems that I have with this movie is that, you know, I don't think, I think you take some liberties with the science of the movie and. That's one of the issues I have. There's one. There's one aspect of the movie where it. I'll just get in. I guess I'll just address it. It's the love thing. I, that's when it jumps the shark for me a little bit. Is yeah, I, I completely agree. I agree. That, that whole thing, and I don't want to be like a like a pick punk, but like for a movie to be so grounded in science. And I, and I do, I, like I said, I know, like Nolan has said before, that it's not necessarily the fact that the movie's supposed to be scientific, ac- sci- like 100% t- scientifically accurate, as much as he wanted to ground it as much in science as he could, because he wanted to make a science fiction film that actually uses more real science than just fake science. That's cool. For a movie where you have a bunch of physicists talking about relativity, time, space, or I'm sorry, space, time, and and the fourth dimension of time, and and all these complex things that are that are realistic and real, and then to be like, oh well, but except for love, because love is like this thing that humans don't really understand at all, and it's like at this point. Love is like the one thing that we have a really good understanding of. Like they, they were able to pinpoint which chemicals in the brain uh, affect which part that we perceive as love, like with lust and stuff like that. So then just to take something that we know so well, and then it made it really corny and cheesy. It's like we've accessed a fifth dimension because of love. I just thought that was really corny. And also, I really don't, I really don't like it 
is really a personal thing. I really don't like it when a movie explains everything to you. This is where I agree with Matthew. I think it was Matthew who said that, like, wishes that they wouldn't have said so much. When you're explaining, like, when you're explaining physics, awesome. Yeah, you should definitely explain that. Like, when, when um, I forget the character's name, but one of the astronauts, when they're explaining how the wormhole warps space-time and he uses the piece of paper and he folds the paper. Yeah, right. That's great. That's, that's, that's definitely cool. necessary. Yeah, necessary. Yeah. Explain that. And I told, when, and I told Layton, I don't mean to interrupt, I told Layton, my wife, when we were watching it, you know, it's that, that type of thing, though, the, the wormhole explaining thing, it always bothers me in movies. I, although it is necessary for the audience, but that's the only reason it's there. Because if these are like the world, the world's best astronauts are going to know how a wormhole operates. I, that's just a nitpick, though. Like that is true. Know, I think the only character character is going to know. Cooper's going to know how a wormhole works. But well, I so that's, right that's that's one thing though, because you know his character is. He's not, he's not, he's not a scientist. Be. He's yeah. he's just a pilot. That's true. And, and that's another true. problem, like one little scene that kind of bothers me in the movie is. I can't remember exactly what it is, but there's a scene where Cooper just has this brilliant idea and draws something up on a whiteboard real quick. And all the physicists and astronauts, you know, are just like, Oh, that'll work. Yeah, sure. Well, he does have an understanding of science because he was a pilot for NASA. So if you're going to work for NASA, you still have to have an understanding of like physics and aerodynamics and stuff like that, which he has. Cause it does establish that he was a NASA pilot. Yeah, Yeah, I I get that, but it's just like, that's just one of those kind of like taking liberties with the plot there. In my opinion, that I think it's something that Nolan does. You know, we've talked about the Dark Knight series. I think he, his movies have a ton of plot holes. They do. Cause I, he's really more of a bigger picture guy, more of the bigger emotional picture and like what things represent on an emotional level, which that's why it's like it's easy for me to forgive him because it's like I know he's going for the bigger picture and I think the bigger picture works, but it does sometimes frustrate me some of the like issues with that. I'm, I'm more okay when they explain the wormhole stuff because that's like that's real, like physics. That's like real physics. Yeah. So yeah, I know like the, so it's like it's not really something to leave up to your interpretation. Like I guess people could like try to interpret how a wormhole would work, but keep it scientifically accurate like i'm okay with that but when and matthew mcconaughey is in a five-dimensional space and he's saying but sars we brought ourselves here through love it's like that's not scientifically accurate that's just the plot and you're just explaining to me what's going on like you're not leaving anything to my imagination yeah corny he's like no don't you get it sars i'm out southern accent is horrible but he's like or my Hey, but he's like, don't you get it, Sars? We brought ourselves here through love. And yeah. I just was like, dude, this is such an emotional moment. And not only are you explaining it, but you're making it corny. Love thing is where I think they, and also when the first time they bring up love and, uh, and, Hathaway's, yeah, and Hathaway's character, she's like, there's this thing, love. We don't understand it. We think we do, but it goes beyond human understanding. And she and just explains so it's, it's so out of character for her, you know, leading up to that point because she's like a robot throughout the whole movie. I mean, yeah, that, that, that is a, on the mission, and that's just that out of nowhere. Conflict. And they did, they did kind of leak a couple things in. You know, the there was the one scene when they first take off, like where he, you know, he waits for them to go to sleep, and he asks Tars, you know, about 
about uh, Brand and like her relationship with one of the scientists. I mean, there's that, but other than that, like we don't get any other like emotional foundation for her at all. So yeah, it is kind of out of the out it's of just the there for the plot. Like, and, and here's yeah. and my thing is, I kind of wanted to touch on that. It's like I think the the beginnings of that love subplot are good. I think that I think that Anne Hathaway sells it in that scene, even though I do think it is corny, even when she's talking like. I think she sells it and I, I would have been okay with it if it would have went to a more profound place and they didn't just use it as kind of like this duct tape as like, Oh, you know, this is how it works. Like when Matt, when Coop is flying through that, you know, prism and of the um, basically the fifth dimension. And he, like you said, he's just kind of using love as this band aid of how it makes, how it all makes sense. Like I yeah. definitely think if they would have went in a more, it's just so hard because the reason I think the movie works so well in these emotional moments without even, if you take out the love aspect at all, the fact that the fact that the movie is so grounded in real science is what gives us the most emotional moments of the film. Like the fact that they're, you know, wasting or not wasting, but the fact that they're using up all this time in, in other gravitational fields gives us the scene where Coop watches all of, you know, his kids videos and when he has that intense emotional moment. So you're using real science to give us these emotional payoffs. And even, you know, at the end, I think that when he's floating through that fifth dimension, if there was just some other way, or, or even if you just leave us with a little bit more to question, it, it don't, don't, we don't need, you know, Coop flying through and telling us, you know, I feel like it was just kind of like, all right, here's a checklist of what all the audience is probably going to be asking right now. Like, and this is what he's doing. Like, I feel like if we don't get that, maybe it works a little better. Um, because I think for a movie that uses all this science to give us these real emotional payoffs, it is kind of weird that we get this kind of shoehorned love fifth dimension plot that it still gives us a good emotional payoff when you find out that he was you know, Murph's ghost. But at the same time, I feel like the other real science examples kind of give it, gave us more in that aspect. I feel like they were definitely working harder uh, than that was. So those are just kind of my, I had to get those out because I don't know. Yeah. I just, I think it, I think it is one of the bigger flaws of the movie. Um, I agree. It's my biggest flaw of the movie. And it's not even too, it's like, and it's not, it's not even, I mean, it is, it does kind of bother me about the love thing, especially just the fact that, I just it just really bothers me. I know it's so nitpicky, but just the fact that when you were saying like they know what a wormhole is, it's like I agree. They know what a wormhole is, and you're gonna tell me they don't know what love is. Like I just like y'all know what a wormhole is. Y'all know how relativity works. You guys are going. You guys are gonna tell me that y'all don't know what what love is now that we know what that is. Like that just I don't know that I do find that corny. But also and. Even even like the whole him going to the fifth dimension thing, I thought that was cool in concept, like mm -hmm. strings and, and him, how he is the ghost. But once again, it's like, even if the if it's supposed to be the fact that he got there through love, if you don't say that and you leave that to interpretation, then like it's also a little bit better because then we can at least like interpret something differently. But then he just sits there and goes, it's love, SARS. Like, he literally says it. Like, he doesn't leave any room for imagination. Yeah, and I think it's so frustrating thinking about it now because it could have worked without that because he he references how, 
you know, this whole time he thought he was chosen by this, you know, invisible force. But then he realizes that Murph is the one who was really chosen. And if they would have kind of leaned harder on the fact that these future humans are what put the wormhole there and they're, they're the ones that were able to, you know, actualize this fifth dimension, you know, they, they just should have, I think if they knew that, um, Murph was the one that was going to be the solution to all this. That could have been an explanation that the audience had about, well, why is the fifth dimension only in this, in Murph's bedroom? Like, why is it only right here for him? Like, what would happen if somebody else was there? Like, I think the fact that the, the, when the paradox is completed in that scene and he realizes that Murph is the one that needs the information from him, I think that would have been fine by itself if we if you yeah. take out the love there. I mean that that gives you still you know you still might have questions after it, but at least at that point it's it's still grounded in. Now it is movie science, but but at the same time it's still grounded in a, oh wow that those the future humans like they, yeah. they 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 saw this and they put this here. There's a lot more imagination there rather than Coop just spouting off. Well, this is exactly how they did it, and it's because of love, and that's how I'm here and. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely think well, now that you brought that up, that that is that is probably yeah, that's probably the biggest flaw for me as well. And it's also, and I'm not going to try to compare this movie to the movie I'm about to, because it gets, I think it gets unfairly compared because I do think that Nolan was going for something. Yeah, 2001. Because I do think Nolan was going for something different. But one thing, the thing that 2001 Space Odyssey did the best is where. The biggest issue with Interstellar is because even if even if someone doesn't like 2001: Space Odyssey, it's like the great thing about that movie is that it it literally tells you nothing. Like it's completely up to your interpretation. There's a lot of things that happen. There's almost no dialogue, and you can take that movie and you can interpret it in any way you want. Like you can interpret it as like a as it's about evolution and like what happens beyond like point of evolution once we find technology and stuff like that or it could be like anything it could be a completely different completely different interpretation and that's what i think has made 2001 such a timeless movie that well one it's like extremely well made but two though you can literally me you and jake could all watch that movie and walk away with a completely different interpretation of, of what that meant we're not given that in Interstellar, unfortunately, because I think it would have really benefited if they wouldn't have explained the fifth dimension thing and left it to our interpretation. Then we could all be here talking about, well, I think it's love. Well, I think it was aliens. Well, I think it was this. I think it was that. And yeah, I agree. I think the fact that he whole he did such a good job at showing, not telling throughout this whole movie until like that point. And well, a couple points too, but when it's like most important to show not tell he just like tells everyone what's, what's going on it's kind of like the opposite way. it's kind of like the opposite problem that like um annihilation has like the ending of annihilation like is profound and amazing and it still it leaves you with a ton of questions i yes. feel like i feel like a movie like this needed that now i do also maybe understand that this was his kind this was nolan's you know foray into you know, he wanted to make a sci-fi blockbuster and maybe, maybe he felt, or who knows who, maybe he was pressured to not make, not make this, you know, very convoluted, very complex 
movie end with ambiguous points. Maybe maybe he was pressured or felt like it needed a, a rounded end to it. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that all your points are correct, and it would have it would have probably given us a more lasting impression if it did have a little bit more ambiguity to it. Yeah, I, I think that Nolan made a conscious conscious choice with some of the things that he did in this movie to kind of separate it from 2001. But I think those choices are what ultimately prevents it from reaching the level of 2001. In my mind, I mean, it's, I guess it's kind of unfair to compare it to that movie because that movie is such a masterpiece. But, uh, you know, like you said, we could have different interpretations of that movie. And I feel like Nolan wanted to just explain every choice. And, you know, that's fine. He, he wants his audience to kind of understand the movie because it's, you know, it's, it's got difficult stuff in it. I mean, re- there's nothing simple about relativity and all the science behind this movie. But then again, this is science that we don't truly understand. Uh, even the smartest people in the world, the smartest astrophysicists don't understand it. And to give it such a, such a, simple and like crew said corny solution just it just doesn't really work and you know there's one other thing i want to get into and i I promise i'll start i'll stop nitpicking the plot but the thing that another thing that just always bothers me about this movie is how how uh mcconaughey's character gets to be the pilot on the on the mission and i understand that the you know the whole movie is is signifying that time is a flat a flat circle that all these things happen as a result of each other and that it you know it, it just forms a loop but it's just such a plot hole in my mind that uh mcconaughey cooper can show up at this uh this nasa lab and just be handed this this mission just yeah. because he happens to show up and i get on like on the aspect of you know the future future humans were leading Cooper back to this place, but you can't explain why the original Dr. Brand played by Michael Caine would then choose to pick Cooper f- to lead the mission. It just, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And it, it always bothers me every time I watch it. Well, I think the reason is, is because they are the NASA scientists are just way too, they come off as like omniscient almost like they, it would be one thing if they showed or feigned surprise, at, more surprise at how he got there. I mean, Brand, you know, young Brand, uh, uh, Anne Hathaway, you know, she she is intense at the very beginning when she's questioning Cooper. But at the same time, after that, once they get into the boardroom, it's kind of just like a you know family reunion type type deal, and it's it almost feels like they expected him. To, to be there there's there's that one question where coop you know coop asks him you know what were you going to do if i didn't show up you know we were still going to go we had no choice but i do yeah it is it is kind of hard to get over that and another thing for me um going back to the fifth dimension scene is in that moment now i understand that for the plot to work but i feel like this is nolan kind of just squeezing it in there hoping we wouldn't really catch it because in the context and you guys correct me if i'm wrong maybe i'm overlooking it or i'm missing something but 
in the context of the scene, it makes no sense for him to think, oh, I need the coordinates for NASA. Like, I need to I need to tell Murph this. Like, he's there in the moment. And I think the only reason it's kind of shoehorned in there is like, oh, well, I have to I have to explain how he knew the NASA coordinates and I have to put that in there. But I feel like for Coop's character in that moment, he, you know, he was just, we just watched him have an emotional breakdown about him leaving Murph in that moment. So I think, I think it just, the pacing of that is kind of weird to go from, he did, he doesn't want his past self to leave Murph in that moment. But then he immediately is like, well, I need to throw these NASA coordinates in here because it happened. So I have to, you know, the plot, the plot falls apart if it doesn't do that. Yeah, and I know, true. and I think that gets all back into what I was complaining about with time paradoxes. Like I know that he has to do it because otherwise it, it's just, it doesn't complete the the paradox, but I don't know. I just think that's another, I don't know. I, I think it had to be done, but it's something that bothers me every time. Uh, and it bothered me. It bothered me watching it on this because in that moment to me, it just doesn't feel natural for him to need to do that. I think the real question is, what is up with Matthew McConaughey and Tom being a flat circle with him, honestly? <laughs> Especially in 2014. Actually, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that, though, because that's what that's the one thing I am excited to talk about in the themes, though, because there actually are a lot of themes I do like in this movie. Um, I think this movie takes a lot um, a book by Nietzsche, a philosopher, I, I'm excited to talk about. And I think it's the thing that I love the most about this. Well, no, the thing I love the most about this movie is the visuals, which we'll get into the directing in a minute. But um, Nolan, Nolan has a lot of elements of Nietzsche in his movies. And I think this might be like one of the biggest ones. But also, now that the more we've talked about it, there are also still some conflicts in, in I guess, the whole Nietzsche reading that we'll get into. But... Um, I will say another example though is I actually did like the um oh, what's his name Matt Damon. I was cool with the Matt Damon thing. My biggest problem with the Matt Damon thing when it was corny that his name was Man and Khan being the best of us. I thought that was corny. But when he does the whole betrayal thing, I think that's cool once again from a thematic purpose and that goes back into like the need Thing we'll talk about but i hate when he's walking away and he's then explaining everything again like he's walking away he couldn't just do it and walk away like bust cooper's uh glass helmet open he had to keep turning around and going it's about mankind uh, we have to survive that was my matt damon impression <laughs> he was just like he's like we have to survive it's in our genes it's in our genetic code we'll do whatever we can to survive and he just keeps saying the same thing over and over again, explaining to the audience like like the uh, essence of human survival and what it is in our genetic code. It just I think that's just my biggest thing is he tells way too much. There's a lot of great stuff he shows, but then he he backs it up by telling us. Yeah, that is that is kind of no, very noticeable once you bring it up. Uh, and also, like here I am nitpicking the plot again, but it shows him throw. Uh, Cooper's radio transmitter into this giant hole, and then all of a sudden they're fighting, and they're nowhere near the giant hole. Yeah. And then his radio transmitter's sitting there right beside him. Like, it, I don't, I don't know if that's just something I noticed, but I know it is. I think, I think on this time I got confused as to what it was again. I was like, wait, is that what he went down there for, or was that his radio transmitter? But yeah, 
it um you know he probably could have just broke it in his hands i mean he probably could have just you know done that or like you said thrown it in a giant hole which it shows us he did and it, I, I hate things like that too because you don't have to show us d- him doing that you could show us that he only throws it like 30 yards away but yeah i don't know that is that is interesting one one thing about his character that I noticed in this um lot in this viewing is how his character dies when he's trying to uh you know dock the ship onto the space station. I noticed a lot of similarities, and this is a really random just comparison, but to the Dark Knight when um Rachel uh spoilers for the Dark Knight if you somehow have not seen that movie, but uh when Rachel dies in the explosion in the Joker explosion, like how in that moment we're kind of like left hanging, like wondering like what's going to happen. And she kind of blows up like mid sentence. Um, I liked that in this movie. I yeah, liked it. That was the one time I was cool with him talking so much is when it ended in him dying. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting that in that context with Rachel, she's trying to stay like positive and like talk to Harvey over the phone. Um, and she's kind of just cut down in the middle of her sentence. And then in this movie, you know, Matt Damon's character, Dr. Mann is, in the middle of what would probably be like his character's manifesto. And right as he's about to have this big profound moment, the the ship just explodes. And I, I don't know the similarity in those scenes. I, I noticed that this time and maybe it wasn't intentional, but I don't know. I did. It kind of, it just reminded me of that scene. Also, Jake, don't beat yourself up on nitpicking the plot so much. Cause that's easily the, that's easily the biggest flaw of the movie is the, is the, is the plot. Um, I mean, everything I feel like we're going to talk about from this point on will be very positive because there's a lot of positive things. But that's like that's Nolan's thing is like if Nolan ever has a weak spot, it's always for the most part his screenplays. Um, you were talking about the dark. We were talking about before we started recording the Dark Knight Rises. You said for, everything's you know really cool, and then it just falls apart in the third act. Although I don't think this movie falls apart in the third act, it definitely kind of it it goes from being like arguably like um, like almost a masterpiece given a few little problems to actually being like knocked down a peg in the third act so like i think it's kind of the it's kind of the same thing as the dark knight rises except just not as drastic and like not as uh bad flawed but it's still like an issue I think the biggest um, the biggest way you kind of don't notice that on the first viewing is that it's such just a I don't I don't want to say heroic but it's just such a uplifting like sequence the last like twenty to twenty five minutes are just you know the music is just at the peak and it's just hitting all the right notes and you know you're getting all these the visuals emotions. are incredible the visuals are incredible you're getting all these emotional payoffs whether or not on closer analysis you think they work all the way or they work as well as they should you're still seeing a lot of things on screen that you're like just at the end of the day they're just really satisfying to see after watching two and a half hours of this movie so i think that it, it kind of self-serves itself in that aspect it doesn't give you a time to really let up like if there was a moment where the characters are just kind of I guess if there was a moment like in most films after like a really long runtime where we're just kind of left sitting there like on a on an exhale in a movie and you kind of have time to sit there and think while the movie's still going like, wow, I like this movie. I don't know. That was kind of whatever. Like this this movie, the last like 20 minutes, 
they just don't stop. There's, there's one, you know, foothill after another, and you, you kind of are just hitting all those until the movie ends. And so I feel like that's a big reason why, you know, it's, I guess, I guess I didn't notice some of the things until multiple rewatches, but yeah, I, I definitely think that's one of the things that saves it because if it, if it had a much slower ending, I feel like more people would probably, it, it probably wouldn't sit right with more, more people. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, I guess he was kind of, I, I'm from what I'm guessing is I think Nolan, I think this is just what Nolan does is I think, I think Nolan gets way too much credit, but also I think he doesn't get enough credit from his haters, but also like way too much credit from the people who like really, really like obsess over him. Cause like he gets put on this pedestal as like a Stanley Kubrick. I don't think he's a Stanley Kubrick. I don't think he's like a, a provoking perfectionist. To be like a Stanley Kubrick like boy, like I'm not even like that. But that's like a thing about Kubrick is he's just a perfectionist and must be thought provoking. I think Christopher Nolan's more like a Spielberg. Like he makes these big blockbuster movies that are really about emotion and like just kind of having an experience. But he puts a lot of kind of you know highbrow concepts and and or grounded stuff in his films to kind of help add to it. I think some people look too deep into that and like, or not too deep. I think people look into it and just think like, Oh, this is like super, super smart. And it's a really enjoyable movie. And then like people look maybe really deep in it. Like, okay, well you gave us this much and now why are you like, like I, I feel like he probably, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think he was probably banking on people just being like, oh, wow, cool. Like this relativity stuff's cool. And oh, this is really cool in these dimensions. That's a great emotional movie. And and then I don't think he was banking on like people like us being like, How are you going to have all this? And then you have the whole love thing. But I don't think that's, I mean, I think that's like a dig on him. I mean, like if you're going to go, you know, that far, don't go half, go all the way. And I think it's still uh, valid criticisms. I think he was probably just trying to make a more grounded blockbuster. Um, I think that's what he always tries to do, but that does kind of leave up some plot holes that sometimes bother me. Not yeah. all the time, but sometimes they do. And this is still one of the like highest rated movies on IMDb. So I mean, it's definitely it was definitely a success for him. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people say this is like one of their favorite movies of all time. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, on any given day, my wife would probably tell you this is her favorite movie. Because I, I think for it, it does a lot of different things, and that's what a blockbuster can do. I mean, it, it has a, something for everyone. I mean, if you want to watch an epic sci-fi movie, that's for you. If you want a movie with intense emotional moments, I mean, this movie will sneak up on you and it'll it'll get you. I mean, you know, I, I teared up during during the uh, the video re, like where he's watching the transmissions. Uh, you know, probably every time I do, just because it's. I mean. McConaughey's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. I don't think the writing in those scenes is particularly like what does it. It's really when you just see how Coop sees his children in that scene. So, I mean, it, it does a lot of different things and it made over, I mean, it had a budget of 165 million and pulled in 677 million. So, I mean, definitely, definitely a great success. And I want to say one last thing, uh, one last, I guess, example and this is still a nitpick because like I said, I don't think there's any, like there's no glaring issues with this film. I think there's just things that don't work for us as we've talked about. But I think one of the biggest examples of Nolan just having this obsession with 
making sure that we all understand and like know every like kind of loose end is the very end. And I'm kind of conflicted and I'll explain why. Because the very end, you know, if you would just end the movie, like with him talking to Murph when she's like on her deathbed, basically, and then kind of like have maybe him walk out and like look out over the expanse or maybe something like that, it, it would have been kind of a profound ending. But, you know, they had they had to have the scene where it's like, you should go, you should go to Dr. Ma- Dr. Brand, like you need to go make sure she's okay. Like we didn't need that. I mean, we know we, we could have just sat with the fact that she went to that planet to be with whoever. Um, and, but instead we see her on the planet and we understand like, Oh, he's going to go, he's going to go see her. Like, and I guess we get the other tidbit about how her, you know, uh, you know, love, love interest had apparently passed away or did not make it. So, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like that, that kind of wasn't needed. It was just Nolan's way of like, well, I, you know, I didn't tell him what happened with Dr. Brand. So I, I need to tell him and I need to make sure that there's this happening too. So I don't know. I think that's just a good example of him just being obsessed with telling us what's going on. And I'm conflicted because on the other hand, I would have I would have loved with how much the ending kind of packs into the movie. Like I would have been fine with like another five minutes. At that point, why not just show me? Why not Why not just show him going to the planet and like having a, a moment with her or something like that? I, I think that's what conflicts it for me. Like if you're gonna tell us all this and show us every nook and cranny of the movie, like just show me show me Coop and Doctor Brand having this uh, emotional payoff where he tells her, you know, I don't know. There's just kind of random thoughts about that part. Yeah, I I, I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, but I want to go ahead and get my, if you guys are ready to kind of transition the characters, I know we've talked about it a little bit, but I want to kind of transition to that point so I can go ahead and get the last of my negatives out of the way. Because huh. I feel like I'm I'm harping on this movie too much because, like I said, I really like the movie. But there's just... I, mean, I, would say I love this movie. Like, I, I would confidently say, like, I really love this movie. Same, yeah. I, I do too. Yeah. I, we're talking about nitpicks now, but like, we're really about to get into like the good of the movie. Yeah. So just to kind of get my last complaints about the movie out of the way, I don't really care for the most of the characters in this movie. I know the movie is like primarily about Cooper and Murph's relationship, but it. <laughs> Every time I watch the movie, it it really bothers me how uh, Cooper's son's treated. He's like, <laughs> I guess he's like the redheaded stepchild of the, the yeah, family. I guess that and, is a good point. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It, it just it's always it, bo- it bothered me the first time, and it bothers me every time since that like he's just he's just so sidelined yeah. throughout the movie, and like and but Cooper and Murph's relationship is so great and works so well. You know, I really want to compliment uh, the child actor. I think her name's Mackenzie Foley. Is that her name? That played young Murph? Yeah, that's her. Uh, I think that she was like absolutely amazing in this movie. I think that she's actually better than Jessica Chastain as Murph in the movie. I, I really, I really connect with her and like how her performance really, really builds that, you know, it really makes us buy into that relationship between the two, uh, between Murph and Cooper that really drives the whole movie. So I think her performance is, I 
arguably one of the most important, maybe the second most important performance of the movie. And I thought she was really, really good in it. But, um, but yeah, just those two characters are, are great. But the re- like even even Anne Hathaway's brand character, I I don't feel much connection to her. Um, but then again, the movie's not about her. It's, it's about it's about Cooper and Murph. So. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get those complaints out of the way, so hopefully I can be more positive going forward and talk about some of the things that I really like about the movie. Well, you're 100% right. I mean, without Mackenzie Foy's, you know, young Murph performance, I mean, if that if that falls flat, I mean, the rest of the movie is really like on an up, well, uphill battle in getting us to really care about their relationship. So, I mean, you're 100% right there. And yeah, I, now that you say that, I mean, it's not like a huge issue, but I do remember the first time I watched it just being kind of put off by Casey Affleck playing, you know, old Tom, like his old older version of his son. Like it, it, it I don't know. Like I get, I get what the character motivations were, but at the same time, I feel like there's not a lot of follow through there. So his turn to kind of being like a, a villain character is really just like, I don't know. It just feels like it's out of left field. Like I, I definitely don't think there was enough there. What, what is there makes sense. I mean, there's not. It's not like I'm. It came completely out of nowhere. But yeah, it, it definitely just kind of didn't sit right with me. Um, because especially if you're not going to give us like the resolution for it. I mean, I don't understand kind of the point of doing it in general. But yeah, I don't know, Cruz. What do you think? Um. Well. I do love Murph as a character, and like I said, um, I mean, I like all the performances. If we're talking about performances, I think everyone's great. Yeah, I don't have any complaints there. Uh, for sure. Timothy Chalamet, I was really shocked. I mean, I think he's a great actor, but he did really, really well for his, especially as young as he was. I mean, um, Kenzie Foy is like definitely the highlight in the children acting. I would say, yeah, I would say her and uh, are just kind of the highlights in general for the performances. Um, my thing with the, uh, I don't have a lot of connections to the characters. Um, I, I, that's why I'm waiting to get into themes. I think the characters represent certain things more so than, like, I'm connected into, to the characters more and what they represent more so than, like, who they are as characters. In my interpretation of the film, which could be wrong. So, I mean, I guess that's when we get to the theme. But I really like Cooper a lot as a character. I think he's a very interesting character. Once again, I still think it's one of I, I think it's one of Matthew McConaughey's best performances. I think he's great. I really believed him every time he had any emotion. Really, when he was mad, when he was sad, when he cried, I always believed it. Oh yeah, yeah. He's definitely easy to root for in this movie. You know, yeah. one other thing I wanted to to bring up. Uh, I feel like they kind of missed an opportunity with a. Uh, Romley, and that they go down to the the first planet, and you know they have their accident, and it causes them to lose so much time. And Romley experiences what was it twenty one or twenty three years? Twenty three. I, I I I'm so glad you said this because I have a thought about that too that I thought about during this viewing. But yeah, go ahead. But I basically I just think it would you know that's such a relativity, such a cool concept, and the the idea of Romley being on this, uh, you know, the station alone for 23 years and the kind of the impact that that would have on him. I, I feel like that's something that they should have took a little more time to 
uh, flesh out and maybe explore. And instead, they just it's a two minute conversation, and then we're on to the rest of the movie. Yeah, which they do make reference that he he didn't spend the entire twenty three. That's true. Yeah, like well, at one point he does go like into the little sleep chamber. Yeah, I think that's what you know. It's funny you say that because that's one of the first things that really like when you're watching it and, and even before things kind of go awry on that planet, they're still talking about him having to be up there for several years. And I think that that when you're watching it, you're like, Oh my gosh, like they're really like, sacrifice. They're really like, he's about to have to sit up here for like years while they're down there for like, you know, an hour or 30 minutes. Supposed to be two years. It was supposed to be two. Yeah. And I'm still sitting there just like, why aren't, why aren't they like, where is this moment where he is just like going to have this existential crisis? Like where he's, he's, you know, I I get his character is not, not really the focal point and him as a character is kind of like stoic in general. But I think the one thing that bothered me is when they come back from the, the, you know, the escape mission, I understand that they were probably extremely on edge and stuff, but I just wish there would have been like some kind of emotional moment between like, you know, Romley and, you know, Coop and Ron, I know that, you know, he kind of embraces like brand and talks through it, but I, I don't know. I just wanted there to be some kind of like intense emotional moment. Like maybe like Coop just kind of like, I, I guess I, when I'm watching the movie, I just see Coop like falling into him, his, his arms and just like apologizing and just like losing it. I, I don't know. I don't know if that would have made it better or if it would have put a, you know, I guess Romley as a character, wasn't supposed to be that important, so they couldn't really spend that much time on it. But I don't know. I just felt like the reaction that he gets when they come back from that moment is just kind of undersold. Like I think I think they should have done gone a little over the top with it. Also, in like the scene beforehand, he's like talking to Cooper, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm really kind of stressed out about the fact that I'm in this little box in space." And then he spends 23 years in that little box on space. Come back and he's like, "Yeah, I was just here. Like, didn't bother him that much at all." I know. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Also, isn't that kind of a plot hole too? I guess we just found because don't they make a big, well, not a big case, but don't they make a point before Cooper goes into the sleep chamber? They're like, "Don't stay up here long because we have a certain amount of oxygen on this thing." And like, he stayed. I mean, he still stayed like awake for like a while in the in this without going into the sleep chamber. Shouldn't he have used up like most of his oxygen at that point? Because there was no way they were banking on twenty three. Yeah, I mean, I get, I guess so. But I mean, maybe, maybe it's because there was only one person on the ship breathing oxygen. Yeah. I, I guess, but yeah, I do, I do see what you're saying. And, and not to get back into a conversation about like the plot and pacing and all that, but I definitely think this is one of the scenes where you really feel like. You know, Nolan is like, well, I can't spend, we, we have a lot more movie left to go. I can't spend too much time here because one of the things my wife pointed out was when they're down there on the water planet, you know, they, they reference how an hour is seven years and we're, we're like, he's ends up being up there for 23 years. So it, to me, it's just kind of like, they really speed through that scene. Like you just have to take like the, the plot is just, hoping you are with it and just accepting the fact like, you know, they've been down there for already like an hour at that point, even though really the scene is only like a minute or a minute and a half. And then it's, Oh, we have to get out of here. Uh, I, I definitely think that's one of the scenes where they, they cut out a lot that they could have probably added there because the timing doesn't feel as 
you don't feel the weight of how long they've been there because the scene is only like two minutes long, really. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that's also, a small, another small complaint. I have a, I, I can't, like I said, I, I don't understand relativity. I get the basic idea of it. But one thing that I was thinking is that, you know, uh, one, like you said, one hour on the planet is seven years for Romley. But Romley is also. I said for uh, he's, Earth, yeah. We're going to the same, yeah. Well, basically, my question is that since Romley is so close to the black hole that's distorting space time, shouldn't time, even if it say it's 23 years for Romley, then shouldn't it have been much, much longer on Earth? Yeah. Well, did he, did he say it was 23 years for him, or did he say. At for Earth, it would be twenty three years. No, it, it it was twenty three years for Romley being on the ship. Um, I it, think it, that's that's pretty solid. I'm pretty sure. Like I'm pretty yeah. sure. And, uh, and they, think, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I think their explanation for it was the fact that maybe the ship went so outside went, of the pool of the black hole. Yeah, that. when Coop draws on the whiteboard like Cruz was harping on earlier, like uh, or Jake was harping on yeah. earlier. Um, yeah, I think that that's kind of like what they were wanting us to lean on is like that's it's not in the gravitational pull, even though it probably should be. Like, I mean, it probably should be, but I guess that's their way of explaining it. So yeah, I don't. Know. Like I said, that, like I don't know. Like I could be completely off base. It's just one of the things that on this viewing is the only time that I've thought about it. But it just seems like to me that it would it would be much longer on Earth. But I guess. I mean, I'm sure they did the research into that aspect of relativity, and that's probably scientifically uh, as accurate as we can possibly know, I guess. Well, the one of the producers on the film is uh, Kip Thorne, a theoretical yeah. physicist. I mean, yeah, I can't really... Like I said, I love physics in terms of I've just always been fascinated and I read stuff about it, but also relativity is one of the things that always blew my mind that was hard yeah that's mind-boggling all i know is that it's like it's like time is like relative to like how you like something moves to an object like like if someone like how you approach like the speed a lot or something like that like time can slower speed and stuff like that like gravity bends time or something something like that yeah basically the the size of an object just kind of determines how much it distorts time yeah because it's it's supposed to be it's like space is like a fabric and then like every object in space it like pulls the fabric of space down and then that distorts time it also like has to do with gravity i'm not a physicist so i'll do an awful job i, I mean i'm i find <laughs> it all interesting i always watch the videos of uh explaining physics and then I'll get it down and then like three months later because i i don't ever have in a situation where i have to apply physics i'll forget it Yep. I go back and watch it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the and exact I will same say, way I, I will say that I think it was a great idea to make that kind of the scientific, like, fulcrum point of the movie because we understand as a society just enough about black holes to kind of have an understanding going in, but there's definitely a lot that we don't understand. So using that as, like, Nolan using that and kind of, inserting his own like movie science about black holes is I think that's one of the strong points because yeah, that works. I mean, even though it's definitely spaghetti when you went through a black hole, 
Yeah, I mean, even though edification, as they call it, you go the Matthew brought up the movie science, like because we don't understand what goes on in a black hole, then we can kind of forgive. Uh, yeah, like like Cooper in real life going into the the black hole like that's that wouldn't happen. Like he would I'm be like stre- he'd be eternally stretched and die pretty much immediately. But yeah, I mean, even the ship like. I think that's one of the funny things. Nothing can cross the face of the black hole like we do. We do know that. But. Yeah, and I think it's funny to me that like when they when the ship even on the way in when the ships go through the black hole, it's like you're telling me that they're going through this black hole and like the only thing that's happening is like the ship's kind of shaking a little bit and the lights are, are flickering on and off. Like that's that's the only thing that's going to happen. Like I was expecting like you know at least show them throwing up and getting sick or something like that. But I mean. That that's all that happened. It's just basically just like a bumpy ride through the yeah. you know, through the through the uh, through the mountains or something like that. But yeah, I don't yeah. want to get like sidetracked, but I do want to bring up like it's really cool if you ever want to go look at it. Like what what it would look like getting sucked into a black hole compared to what it would be like. Like mm-hmm. being like if you were getting sucked into a black hole, you pretty much die instantly. But if somebody was like watching from the outside. It would you would like reach a certain point, and it would look like you would just stop and froze there. And like realistically, what's really happening is that person's getting like stretched, like mm-hmm. and eternally. But from somebody watching it, you're not seeing that at all, which is just it's it's mind it's mind blowing and it's crazy to think about, but it's so fascinating. So I just want to existential crosses. that I used to have like those day scares thinking about how space never ends like that's that's <laughs> i'm about to get back into that point yeah physics I, used to give me daily existential crises yeah i'm just glad i'm glad this movie stuck it stuck the something simple like black holes and not not the uh ever the never-ending expanse of space but yeah i think i think there's a great mixture of uh the known and unknown here But uh, you know, going off of that, going into the next uh, next topic, I think um, is it time to talk about some themes? I think we've uh, there's we directing. Started? If y'all want to talk about, yeah, we can kind of group those together. I think because yeah, I think to. this might be some of his most ambitious filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, because you know, it, it always kind of. I think Nolan is pretty famous, or at least the perception by of Nolan is that oh, he you know he wants to make real films and not use like not have an over reliance on cgi but i mean this film is i mean like you said i mean this has some of the most ambitious shots using cgi i mean that you could ever i mean you could ever theorize i mean it, it just looks amazing and there's so many just great shots in this film that i think you know he he definitely hit the home run on that and like you said he's he's more of a big picture guy and i think that when he was probably thinking of how this movie would go, he was probably just thinking of about a lot of these visuals that we get to see. Like when the ship is going in front of the black hole, I mean, and when you have the Saturn kind of silhouette. And I think one of the most simple scenes, and maybe some people might think it looks bad, but the scene when they first are kind of like in, it's when they first make it to Saturn and we just have just a black, backdrop with Saturn there and there's just that simple lens flare that kind of comes across the screen like 
I don't know. There's not, there's not a lot of stuff going on in the background, but to me, just how clean and like, I guess the dry vacuum of space looked like that's the impression I got is when they show us that I, that was just such an incredible shot to me, just showing how spooky and just like empty space is. But then there's this giant planet right there. I don't know. All uh, the shots can... were great. Yeah, it's definitely. And amazing. what they did to capture that was insane. I mean, they built pretty much, it was almost none of it was like CGI, just a couple of things. Cause like they made map paintings. He only used one light source kind of like drive home the fact that uh, there was only kind of one major light source. Um, and so they only used like, they would basically make like miniatures of the spaceship, but the spaceship miniatures were like, <laughs> like as big as our cars and they would hook them up um, to like, cranes and stuff like that and put them in front of matte paintings and they used like electronics there was like one of the spaceships they or one of the miniatures of the spaceship they had they put it on a wheel that christopher nolan could control to make it move uh around and that and they would film that during like the turbulent scenes i mean he went all out in like every single way i mean like he like they use like much like just these huge miniatures and matte paintings and robotics the sars um sars was a was a real thing only only when he when he like had like like his arms would extend into like these cranes and stuff like that was uh that was um cgi but like the actual movement it was a dude it, they, they were these steel beams and it was a dude behind the sars moving it had like a like there were like these like wires and stuff set up to him where he could move it where it's almost weightless like used his weight as a as like a support system and then um all the all the scenes on the on the planets that isn't earth were shot in sweden which i thought was interesting that water planet is a, a place you can visit in sweden which is pretty cool um uh the big wave that was cgi i'm pretty sure yeah i don't remember um, any tsunamis around there um, that's yeah probably. i didn't, I didn't know if it was because i was like i was like is that a map painting no way they put a map painting there but i didn't know that that is fascinating i mean i just i guess you know assumed that a lot of that was cgi but that's that's incredible to yeah, me too yeah and it wasn't until i watched because i watched a uh watched the special features on the dvd of how they did that stuff all the stuff they went through the dust storms real they basically took this apparently it's safe to inhale this filler which is kind of gross but filler in most meats like processed meats oh my god they just put them up to a fan and it looks like dust when it hits a fan and so they just made these like real dust storms of like meat filler and um yeah, like the location in man's planet and the water planet, like that was shot in Sweden. They built the farmhouse. They also like grew the corn crops because there's not, because they shot in Calgary. That was in Canada. They like just made their own corn. And also they used like, um, they actually like when they drove through the cornfield, there was a guy on a helicopter shooting it with the camera. And then there was also, 
guy who was like a drones expert who was operating that drone would like jump down um and then jump into a helicopter and still man the drone while they were filming it like they went all out on this movie it was insane that is that's so that's so cool yeah it's one of his most ambitious movies for sure that's coming from the same guy who made inception (laughs) so that's that's really saying something that is, is most ambitious yeah, I know. Yeah, because I mean, we could go on and on about all the stuff he did for real in Inception too. Yeah, and I mean, there's some scenes in Inception where you're just like, you can't help but notice how impressive the shots are. But in this movie, I mean, you're just talking about when you compare like the going through the cornfield with the drone to like something that happens two hours later into the movie. Like, that's still so impressive that they went to those lengths to pull that off. Yeah, it's it's insane. Also cool little thing too about the about the water planet i didn't know i saw it on reddit and, and then someone explained the math but it, when they're on the water planet score the music which i also think this might be hans zimmer's best score yeah that's one of my favorite parts about that the was, movie that was gonna be the next thing i brought up is how we haven't yet mentioned hans zimmer the mu- the music in this is fan- i think i think dunkirk is the most effective nolan uses the score but I think this is just like his most beautiful and well-made score. Yeah, uh, that mountains that mountains track is uh is incredible. I mean, it's yeah. It's, uh, Stay track too is great. It's special. But in the in the water planet, um, every minute and twenty five seconds, the music playing there's a tick, and that's supposed to be a, a whole day passing on Earth. Yeah, I had seen that before. Um, like on, I think on Reddit just as well. That's true. The attention to detail is insane. Yeah, I mean that's it's special. And like like we just brought up, I mean Hans Zimmer. This is just all the, I guess the consistent just just the tones, like the 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 beats that are used throughout the whole movie, just to make up the overall score that kind of just lay in the background of some of these scenes. Uh, it's just so it's just so iconic honestly uh when i when i was watching it yesterday i i'd kind of forgotten like how good it was and when i first heard like one of the one of those tones of just you know zimmer's touch there i i just was immediately like brought back like oh man i'm watching interstellar like this is great you know it's it it's that iconic to me that's an iconic score for sure i mean like i mean it's been years since i've seen interstellar until now rewatched it and I still like will listen to some of that score between the year because it's just so good I mean it's it's really beautiful I mean to me the best part about this film is is the is the directing and the filmmaking behind it which is not necessarily like a shot at anything else in the film it's just like that's where Nolan succeeds so much is he just there's so much passion in his filmmaking yeah, I can definitely agree there. There's there's nothing to criticize in that aspect. Like it's a it's I mean, he just brings a made movie. I mean, he's he's on his game and all his movies are like that. Like you can't like direction is never really the thing that you criticize his movies for. It's usually screenplay and you know, characters and that type of thing, but he there's he can definitely direct a movie. I mean that's for sure. Yeah. Should have directed Star Wars Episode Two. Uh, yeah. if, only, been, if, only, if only we could speak 
take this podcast into reality. That would have been that would have been something. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, I mean, like that's, a, that's another interesting thing about Nolan too. Is Nolan? It's because of the Dark Knight, but Nolan found that sweet spot of I get all the funding I want to make whatever I want with any studio, and I almost never have to sacrifice my like vision at all. Which is like yeah. really rare these days. Like, I mean, like I love people like the Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson and they never sacrifice their vision, but they, they do not get big budgets for their movies. I mean, they get like 10 to 30 million, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not. Uh, Nolan, I mean, Nolan gets like a hundred to 250 million for like every movie he does from the dark night on. And he never, it never feels like he has to sacrifice anything. His vision, it's almost just like, they're like, no, do whatever you want. Which is a yeah. gift and a curse, because then the, the only bad thing about that is if there's a flaw in your movie, you know, you can't really blame it on studio interference. That definitely is impressive, because he's making blockbusters. I mean, it's not like he's making smaller scale movies that are going to fly under the radar to most people, like, you know, the Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson sometimes do. He's making movies that like everybody, like summer blockbusters that everybody's going to go watch. And the fact that he can, you know, still maintain his vision and everything he does is, you know, I guess really a testament to how he's uh, viewed in Hollywood. I mean, how well he is. I mean, Hollywood is literally banking on him to save theaters this year with Tenet. I hope he does. I really do. Yeah, I really want to see Tenet really bad. I saw on Letterboxd where it said the runtime is over three hours. I don't know if that's true, but I'm ready. Yeah, I heard it. I saw somewhere where it was like three hours, 15 minutes. Yeah, which, I, like I said, I mean, the one thing that we've said before, Nolan movies, no matter how long they are, they never bore, so. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned his work with the budget because I'm just looking at, like, back in 2014. I mean, his budget for that, for Interstellar, was $165 million. Um, and like for some context, like Guardians of the Galaxy of Guardians of the Galaxy that came out in 2014. Um, oh wait, I think that was two. That was 200 million. I mean, it's just it's it's wild to think about like how good of a film it is and how good it looks. And like not to say that you don't see the money on screen, like where all the where all the resources are going to. But I still think 165 million making an almost three hour movie like with as good as it looks like he definitely uses every bit of what he's getting and he it's justified for all these studios giving him money. Yeah. I guess that's what happens when you much revolutionizing genre yeah. and blank checks. No, and I can't say he doesn't deserve it. I mean, and I, and the great thing about him is, I mean, I've, there, there are times where there will be these indie directors who are really creative, and then they're like, they make a hit, and everybody's like, "We're going to give you bigger budgets," and then they just fall apart, and they do not know how to handle it. And that's not the case for him. I mean, his movies are not without their flaws, but his movies overall work. I mean, I still think this movie is overall a great film, despite some of its shortcomings. For sure. For sure. He's also just a. I mean, I, I, I noticed this the other day uh, with Tenet, you guys mentioned. Um, there's actually, uh, he hit the news a couple weeks ago because there's actually like a, I think it's like a Swedish bicycle company 
by the same name. It's called, it's called Tenet. And like the logo for that business was like super familiar, super similar to the movie Tenet logo. And he kind of, the, the owner of the company like reached out or at least made it public. Like, Hey, like this is my, I kind of did this first. Like I filed for this and Christopher Nolan like sent him like a personal email and apologized about it. And basically said that, you know, that he, he did not mean anything by it and that that's his design. Like, it's just cool to me that he, he's this well-established filmmaker, like worth millions and has this super big movie. And he just, you know, took the time. Say, he's like the opposite of Tarantino as like a person. Tarantino is like the only other kind of, of this generation, like director who kind of is huge and is kind of given the free reign to do what he wants. Like Tarantino won't shut up outside of his movies, unfortunately. He's definitely and, abrasive. He's yeah, Christopher Nolan barely talks, and when he does, he always sounds like a pretty thoughtful guy. So he always sounds pretty nice and thoughtful. You can tell, tell he really loves film. I mean, so does Tarantino. I mean, Tarantino obviously is in love with movies, but um, Nolan is just always, he seems like he seems like a very genuine guy. I mean, I don't know him. He could. I guess he could be a monster, but everything I've heard from about him and from him always seems like a really nice guy. I've heard he's a family guy, cares about his kids a lot. He's a good director. I mean, he makes great films. I mean, there's not a movie of his that I dislike. Yeah, definitely true. Um, may have to get your uh, tentative ranking of those because uh, as we covered last week, you uh, you've been watching all of his filmography here recently. I finished. I finished his whole. Well, I finished most of it. I finished. I finished all I'm going to watch for now. I purposely skipped following, which was like his very first movie, and it's 68 minutes, so it's barely over an hour, and it's not free anywhere. I figured, like, if I didn't include following, and anyone saw it on Letterbox, one most people probably wouldn't even know what following was, and then the other people probably. Like, how could you leave off following? But I'm just going to leave off following. If I ever watch it, I'll add it if it's ever free. But it's just, it's one of those movies that, like, no one, most people didn't even know existed. And so I'll also add Tenet once I watch it because I'm very excited for Tenet. For sure. Um, well, are we, uh, I think we're finally ready to talk about um, all the themes of this movie because, you know, there's, for, for as we said earlier, there's a lot in here for a lot of different people. And I think there's a lot of different things you could take from this movie and walk away from thinking that was the primary theme. Um, Cruz, do you want to get into that? Um, yeah. Um, so basically I could, uh, I'm, I might, I might be giving him too much credit, but I might not, I don't know, but I'll see what you guys think. But basically my interpretation of this movie is that it, borrows really heavily from a book by Friedrich Nietzsche called uh, The Spoke Zarathustra. And if I mispronounced any of that, I apologize, but all of those philosophers are all hard to pronounce and their books are hard to pronounce. Um, but uh, I went through a Nietzsche phase and this is not the first time it's been mentioned. Nolan, there have been a lot of people like on the internet and stuff who have said like, n there's a lot of Nietzsche-esque things in Nolan's films, especially The Dark Knight because of the Joker character. 
of how nihilistic he is. Although I, I probably wouldn't say the Joker is probably the best representation of Nietzsche, but like even the Joker says, like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stranger, and that's like kind of a, a play on a famous Nietzsche quote. But um, pretty much the the story of the spoke Zarathustra. I'm not going to get into the story of the book, but pretty much one of the big themes of that. like something to like overcome and that there will come a point when man has to like man is basically mankind is the in between of animal and superman because that's like a big thing with nietzsche is superman uh the the superman and so basically um there's kind of this general idea that Man has to kind of escape uh, the things that hold his back, like kind of these kind of emotions, and not necessarily emotions, but like societal things that we put a lot of of stock into that can be seen as actually regressive. And man has to progress and like overcome adversity, overcome their nature to be something bigger. And that's like really present in this movie a lot. And it was funny when when um Jake mentioned um Time is a Flat Circle about how this movie because Time is a Flat Circle from True Detective was taken from Nietzsche. It's a concept called eternal return or eternal recurrence. And it, it it's shown up in earlier works of his, but it was most popular in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And it was, which I'm not going to get into that because I don't really know. I mean, it is relevant to the film just in the in the fact of it's time completely happening over and over and over again, and it's how um, how we choose to like live our life in this current cycle and learn to like learn to love life. But in context of the film, the way it can kind of be looked at is that humanity is regressing. The have progressed so much as a society with technology. Now in this film, we're at a point where not only are we facing death, but we are starting to regress back into agriculture. Like we're going backwards, um, which is kind of the idea of man evolved from animal. So we're going back into animal. And so super kind of going on this intergalactic you know, mission to find new planet for humans to live on is kind of this overall overall idea of like overcoming the uh, notions because also back into society has kind of turned their back on science in this film i mean they're they're encouraging to go back to agriculture you you're kind of going to school to be a farmer now as they establish and that a lot of the teachers think the moon landing is fake which is sadly relevant to today but um it's just this general idea of society is regressing backwards and cooper although cooper wouldn't be necessarily the superman of nietzsche's book because he's kind of doing everything for his kids um he's, he's the in-between point which is like a big thing in in the book is that there's an in-between that has to kind of move man to the to the superman level and that's really what he stands as and he he essentially 
just this journey that he goes on where he's having to overcome all the adversity basically to move mankind to the next step and not let mankind uh, die off from from a lack of of kind of making that new kind of umph. Because a big thing in, in the book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra is that the idea is creativity is what propels man and that man has to continue to do something original. And so what's more original than finding a whole new planet and, and starting a whole new, having to adjust to a whole new atmosphere. Although it seems hard, it's like the, it's literally like the only chance we have for hope or, uh, or at least solve the equation like Murph does to create these like kind of new, planets that you can live on these kind of uh stations these earth-like stations which is still creativity but um that's also kind of why that you guys mentioned a couple things that i think is i guess relevant to the reading although i could be reading too much into it but um his son his son the way his son is kind of just left in the in the dirt pun intended left in the dust um the movie because he kind of represents like the animal of man. He kind of goes into the typical like patriarch. He kind of does what says for the family. He's a farmer. He goes back to um, agriculture and all that. He's not really trying to progress man forward. He's like, like the worst of like Nietzsche's interpretation of man. Um, and that's why he's kind of left in the dirt because he doesn't want to progress in society. He holds, he holds too much into the, into the values stowed on society that actually regresses society and especially in the context of this film whereas murph is also much like cooper trying to progress they're trying to get to the next step um brand and daughter um she's actually more of like an example of what the uberman would be the superman um because she uh she's trying to actually bring off to the new planet like she is set on the mission although she does have some human aspects to her like with the uh like her crush on that guy one of the reasons why i think she is such a distant character and like so emotionally distant is because like she is kind of that i am here to progress society uh, whether it's plan a to get humans on a new planet or or b create a colony with a sperm bank and so have like these two sides and essentially it's just the story of this man who is trying to put everything on the line and put his life on the line to have this burst of technological advancement and scientific advancement to bring humanity to the next like essential step of of surviving in the next evolutionary step um, and I probably can detail it better, I guess, the more we talk about our themes and how we get into it, but that's pretty much, that's pretty much my take on it. Um, I didn't get that take first time I watched it because I was too young, but over the years I heard people talk about those connections between the book. So, and now that I've read the book, I went into this movie trying to kind of get connections to the book and that's pretty much what I've gotten, so all i have to say so far about the themes well it's gonna to be tough to follow that but i'm gonna try my best uh you know uh, that is really interesting you put it that way and ha that's all super great information 
and I, I think it kind of, it definitely relates to my my primary conclusion I drew from this movie is much simpler than that, but it also is still you know relates to it in a way. I mean, my my biggest connection with this movie really just comes down to um, what it means to. I guess not only be a parent, but what you as a person, what is your, you know, where is your line in the sand? Basically what, what, at what point would you trust yourself to do what is right by your family or for the greater good? Because I think that one of the more relatable parts of the movie, even though the plot itself is not relatable at all, is you know when he's deciding to leave Murph, you know that that moment he's he's in that you know there's kind of a eternal question there like are you able to do what it takes when when your number's called when when your time is when it's your time to put up are you going to be able to distance yourself from the commitments you have um I think that's definitely the biggest takeaway I have from it. And I think that in a, you know, I guess a much more simplified sense, it still does relate to the ideas you were talking about, you know, at what point does man or Cooper in this case decide to be the representation for man as a whole and do what is necessary to save the human race. Um, but I, that that was kind of my big takeaway from it is, you know, just seeing the struggle that Coop goes through between wanting to do right by his kids and what it means for him as a person. Does it does it mean he's ever going to see his kids again, or or what is he going to miss? You know, is he going to ruin these relationships because of a decision he makes? I think it definitely uh, could be a great movie for, you know parenthood in general is you know you sometimes have to make these decisions and i say this as someone who is not a parent yet but you know you have to make these decisions for the greater good that you know that there's going to be an outcome that comes from this that is worth it but you may burn some small bridges here and there so um definitely not as uh deep of a you know analysis as uh cruz provided but i definitely think that's my biggest takeaway as far as the thing goes uh, Jake, what about you? Yeah, like, I, I really don't have that much to add in, in this part. Uh, I definitely agree, Matthew. That is something that is very, uh, very interesting in this movie. You know, just the the question it asks is, you know, the ultimate sacrifice that you have to make, choosing between uh, human extinction or, you know taking care of your family or seeing your family again. And it's an almost Im- impossible question to ask, which is, you know, why all just about all the, all the astronauts in the movie are don't have any connections to, uh, you know, family, they don't have any family or anything like that. They don't have anything that ties them uh, to humanity. They're just there for the mission. So, you know, m- Cooper being that character that can kind of show us that struggle is, you know, probably the main, the main theme that I get also get from this movie. Um, but other than that, like, I really, I really kind of read this movie as like, you know, criticism of, you know, 
NASA being defunded. And, you know, the, I think this movie came out in what, 2014. It was only three years before that, that the, the shuttle program for NASA had ended. And, um, you know, like you know, Cruz touched on it, that, you know, us becoming stagnant in our pursuits, you know, that, the shuttle program, you know, there's always been that big question of, you know, how much, how much can we really benefit from exploring space? And, uh, you know, there's so much money that goes into it. Is it really worth it? Like, what are we really getting out of it? And I think that movie's kind of criticism of, of that view. And also there's, you know, the obvious climate change aspect of it that I think that's definitely uh, part of the intention of the movie to, you know, obviously our our planet's going through these changes and we're not on the scale yet that they are in this movie, but if we don't make some real changes, we could be there sooner rather than later. So that's, that's basically all I have to add. And, you know, what Cruz is going into, that was, you know, a lot deeper than I've read, that I read into it, but that is super interesting and it definitely fits. You know, now that you've, you've said all that, it, it makes sense. Uh, I don't have that background that I don't really have that knowledge of, you know, that reading into the movie, but I definitely find that interesting. It makes me want to go, you know, look into it a little bit more. So, but yeah, that's basically all I have to add at the moment. Well, um, well, one, if you ever want to read that book, I recommend it. It's a really difficult book to read. I've had to read it like multiple times. It's like, it's like, it's basically like, it's a fictional story, but it's also like a philosophy book, but it's also like metaphor after metaphor after like aphorism and stuff. And it's, it took me a lot of different reads, but it's very, it's very worth it. It's a great book. But I actually, I do want to say, I think the core is actually what Matthew was saying. I think, I think Matthew's interpretation is actually like core. I meant to say that. I just didn't want to, I, I always, when I, every time I talk, I, I meander like I'm doing right now. So I'm, I'm really bad at that. But I think what Matthew said is the core, because I should say, um, Nolan is not Nietzsche. Nolan is like way more optimistic. I mean, Nietzsche has a very kind of penchant for like nihilism. I think Nolan definitely took inspiration from Thus Spoke Zarathustra because he takes, there's a lot of Nietzsche kind of stuff in a lot of his films, but he's, I mean, he's like 40 and a father. So I think, I mean, he definitely is his own interpretation. I think like, I think there is a message in the film that he's saying that he kind of diverts from what Nietzsche is saying where, you know, it's, I think maybe the love thing is I think what Nolan's trying to say is that our love for you know our kids I don't have a kid but he does so I'm guessing he's saying love for like your kids and and that kind of that push to to you know put your life on the line for those you love um for your kids like that's like that is like something that transcend that is so like like vital to being a human but something that could potentially transcend humans as we progress is i think something he might be saying like it's like the whole thing of trying to bring man to the next step but like our love for our children and and the people we love such an important part to just our evolution because of what it's what drives us to 
plot for survival and also like you know the whole reason he go they say the whole reason he even goes on this journey is with the idea that he's gonna provide a future for his kids but i think like it's saying that like that love that we have for you know, our our loved ones and our children that's such an important driving point that that will always be the driving force to progress like mankind yeah, and, and Dr. Mann in his endless dialogue also talks about, you know, that science tells us the, the last thing that uh Cooper's gonna see before he dies is his children. So I definitely I definitely agree that that, that is the very heart of the movie and the I think the main theme of the movie for sure. Yeah, and not to get back into like plot complaints, but I feel like that could have been a very like interesting way to make Dr. Mann's character stand out is when he, you know, it's not really highlighted, but I mean, when he does say that he has that line about, you know, are you seeing them now? Or he asks him if he's seeing his children. Like, I feel like if he would have spoken in more like that kind of ideology and like played more to Cooper's humanity in that moment, I feel like it could have been much more effective. Um, But also, you know, one of the, one other thing I wanted to touch on is I, I think that, the the tone or the uh the theme of sacrifice i think is is really interesting because me as a person i'm always i'm always the type of person that i don't want to leave you know i don't want to leave any stone unturned like if if there's a conflict that's happened or there's something that you know me and another person have you know argued about or fought about i never want to leave that situation without completely resolving it for better or worse um so I think that it's a you know for me it struck me very struck a chord with me when Coop is talking to Murph right before he leaves and he's he doesn't want to leave like that and he's at, he's pleading with her you know don't don't make me leave like this but at the end of the day like he's he gets up and leaves like he he still just gets up because he knows you know he's making that decision for himself um, I just think you know right there it was kind of like way different than like how I would personally handle it like I wouldn't have been able to leave without explaining myself but i think you know it was a really interesting choice and it kind of it really did affect me you know watching him leave just knowing that 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 wound had not healed um i don't know that that was a really really interesting point for me yeah i definitely agree and it's it's really what what truly works about the movie is you know Cooper and, and Murph. I've, we've already established that, but you know it kind of. I kind of look at it now as, you know, it, it says it. An oddly, uh, a frequent amount of times that it makes the point that Doctor Man is supposed to be the best of us, but, you know, really is is Cooper that's the best of us, that he is. He has these. He's driven by love, but he's also able to really, when it all, when it really comes down to it, you know, do what has to be done to, to save humanity, and you know that, that is it is really moving in the movie. Uh, I don't really feel like I have anything else that I can add to that, but it, it's it's definitely compelling. It's my favorite part about the movie. 
I was going to touch on the man thing too. Is what I'm, I meant to work that into my interpretation because I a big thing about the a big thing about the kind of thus spoke is that uh, a big thing with Nietzsche is that he thinks that a lot of things within like society at that time mainly religion, which I don't want to open that can of, water, but he he kind of he kind of said that things that we consider to be and that we attach ourselves to foundationally in like society and like especially like this kind of almost like cheesemo stoicism is actually what hurts us and can regress us and will like betray us. And like man kind of does that because he ends up it's that kind of that that desire for companionship that he's lost from being on that planet and kind of just that lonerism that kind of has driven him to the point where he almost screws up like the entire mission. And it's kind of that, like that's kind of intrinsic, like selfishness and in humanity that kind of like drives him to really almost screw up the entire mission. I mean, he still blows up. Like he, he does the incorrect docking and hurts the ship and leaves the entire crew, um, which was a thing. But also, I mean, Always could be just reading too deep. I mean, that everything I said could just be wrong, and I'm a god. That was just what I got from the movie. Well, like I said, I I definitely think it fits. I mean, it it all makes sense. You know, the way you explained it, it it does, you know, go along with and fits well with the characters and the plot. So I could definitely agree with that view. I just I need to read more into it to. It's a good book. There, there's a lot of Nietzsche in Nolan movies, though. I mean, like, like I said with the Joker, like, especially the Joker's whole arc in that film is like him just saying, like, oh, all the rules and stuff that society prides itself in is a farce. Like, that's a very kind of Nietzsche thing, like early in, and when we were talking about Tom being a flat circle. Well, never mind. Well, you haven't seen that Nolan movie, so but uh, I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to spoil it. But there's another Nolan movie, a very popular one, that kind of plays with that idea. Um, you need to hop on watching. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely sold on wanting to read more into that as well because um, all of that does sound interesting, and I had no, I had no idea um, about how, you know how that related to those themes that I'd never heard of that concept, but that is super interesting as well. Um, but if, you know, Cruz, do you have any more, um, theme things that you'd like to discuss or are we, uh, are we about ready to wind this one down? Only time I, the only other theme I can think we could talk about is Tom. Cause that's just such an intrinsic thing to Nolan's filmography is Tom. If y'all have anything to say about Tom in the film. Well, I don't have, fully fleshed out thoughts about that. But I did think that, you know, watching this film and just thinking about the Nolan films that I've seen, you know, it's definitely a central theme in all of his films, you know, whether it's inception where time is literally, you know, the, it's the machine that moves the plot, you know, other, his other films, like in this, you know, the, the movie is technically, it's technically a race. It is a race against the clock. And, you know, it's all about, you know, how much time are we wasting? How much time are we using? You know, we, we have to speed this up to reduce the amount of time that we're leaving our friends and family back on earth. And, you know, with the dark Knight, there's the, you know, the entire 
basis of the plot of the Joker's plan is based on, you know, you don't have enough time to save both Harvey and Rachel. And he has the timer on the, the ferry explosions and just whether tenants going to follow that same. Oh, hundred percent of time too. Dunkirk has a lot of, I mean, Dunkirk, like, Oh yeah. It's all about, it's all about how much, you know, the, the fact that that story is told in, in three different times that all converge at once, basically. Um, I definitely think it's a very interesting and very broad, um, a very broad brush to kind of paint over stories. You know, there's so much you can do with the concept of time, whether you're using it as as a direct, you know, motor for the plot, like we think is going to be the case in Tenet and how it was in Inception, or if it's just something that is in the background, kind of driving the characters and driving the plot in a, um, in an ulterior way, uh, I definitely think it's very interesting. And if it's obviously something that he, that Nolan holds dear to his uh, craft, I think it's a, a great choice. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't really have anything else to add. We've already talked about relativity and all those things. So Cruz, if there's anything that you want to discuss regarding t- Nolan's use of time and uh, you can go ahead. Oh, we got to talk about physics and Nietzsche, so I'm pretty happy on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm always down to talk about relativity, so. Yep. Maybe that'll be our next pod. We'll just skip a movie, and we'll just talk about physics. Give you guys some homework. A lot of studying. Guys homework. It's like Chris said earlier, it's one of those things that I'll get on a big physics kick, and I'll read a bunch of stuff about it, watch videos and stuff, and then, like, yeah, I got later I can't explain it or really even put it in. There was at one point where like I memorized like a couple like mathematic like formulas for some of the concepts, especially with like lot and like the density of lot over time, but now I've forgotten like everything. Like or something how like lot and gravity loses uh like depending on its relation to an object. I don't know. Physics is so complicated. Hey guys, sorry for the pause there. Um, yet again, we had a couple of technical difficulties that um, you know we won't. I don't know if we should name names, but um, it rhymes with Carter Electrum. I'll just say it. Charter Spectrum uh, kind of cursed us there with the internet, and uh, so yeah, we we had to record this part separately, but we're here and we are back to. Go through right at the end of the podcast. I think we were about to get into ranking Interstellar in Nolan's filmography. Um, but guys, uh, did you have any other thoughts? Uh, Jake, do you have any uh, feelings you want to? You have any grievances you want to air against Charter Spectrum? Uh, I mean, I think everybody knows my thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. anybody that has Charter probably probably experiences the same problems that we often experience so i'm not gonna harp on too much i mean yeah you can almost set your watch to it at least once a week uh that uh it'll just uh it'll just shut down but without further ado i think uh we're ready to kind of see where we think interstellar ranks among nolan's films uh, because when you have a director like like nolan that pretty much doesn't make bad films um, i think it's always important to kind of see where each film stacks up when he comes out with a new one so um, I'll just go first because I'm going to keep it pretty vague uh, because I have not seen all of Nolan's films. I have seen the vast majority, but 
uh, I think I'm just going to keep it vague and say that Interstellar is probably, it's easily, I think, in his top three of films he's made. Uh, it's it's by no means a middle-of-the-pack uh, movie for him. I think outside of the complaints we had, the slight complaints we had about the story and about the plot, you know, this is still an extremely ambitious, beautiful, well-executed film. And it, it serves, it serves many different people and it does a lot of things extremely well. So I think putting it below too many of his films would be a disservice really, uh, because this is a, I, I think it is a fantastic film. So, um, uh, Cruz, I know you had been uh, you've been high on Nolan the past week uh, with his film. So, uh, where do you see Interstellar among his filmography? Yeah, um, well, like I said, I love this movie, and on my ranking list, it's probably considered kind of low. But honestly, except for the number nine spot, I love like every other movie he's done. So it's really not a, a rag on him it's it, or it's not really like a rag on the movie it's just a testament to how great and consistent of a director he is but um for me it's at number six for number nine i got dark knight rises and then insomnia for number eight batman begins for number seven interstellar at number six five the dark knight four memento three inception two the prestige and one dunkirk so uh, I do love this movie. I think it's a great movie. It's got some flaws, but I think it definitely kind of you know, sticks the landing regardless of some issues. And I think it's a great movie. And like I said, it might seem low on my ranking list, but it's really just a testament to how great Nolan is because this movie, you know, if I mean, I feel like if most directors made a movie of this quality, it would be their best movie. And so... Yeah, that's fair. I'm more interested that you have Dark Knight at five. That that's pretty interesting to me. It was I hard. Know. It was hard. This was a much harder ranking than I realized, especially between Dark Knight Rises. I mean, not Dark Knight Rises. Between the Dark Knight and Inception, they kind of switched back and forth a lot. I think it's just, although I think Interstellar is a lot more of a beautiful looking film and more impressive on a technical level. I do think Dark Knight kind of has a stronger story and sticks its landing a lot more. Definitely fair points. Jake, what do you think? Um, This movie comes, like I said, I haven't seen all his movies either, so I can't make a full, accurate ranking. But of of the movies I've seen, I place Interstellar fourth. Uh, I have The Dark Knight at three. Dunkirk at two and Inception at one, um, you know, inter- and having that movie fourth, like kind of like Cruz is saying, it's not a knock on the movie because I really enjoy this movie too. But uh, I think that you know some of the criticisms we have about this movie, you, I don't really have any of those same criticisms about the three movies I placed ahead of it. I think that those are his most uh, well-made well i guess not well-made because we talked about how well-made interstellar was but it has less uh flaws plot-wise than um interstellar does so i I think those three movies are are better than interstellar but you know it's it's still a a very very good movie so y'all seen the uh sorry Uh, have y'all seen the uh prestige by him 
I have not. I have, and I've heard that's not. one of his better ones. I'll have to, because I that was the last one I watched. I put it off because it just did not sound interesting to me, despite what everybody said. And it is so great. I definitely need to add that, you know, everything he I need to make a point to watch that as well as Memento. Um that's also I pretty just, great. Yeah. Is it streaming on anything? It it's like free on IMDB TV. Okay. Memento is. Uh Prestige yeah, I don't think is streaming anywhere. I've always wondered because on my my television, like it always advertises like it always pushes IMDB TV on me. Is, is there a trial with that or is it just free completely? It's free because there's ads. So you have to okay. kind of watch some ads during the movie, but other than that, it's it's free. Okay, that's fine. May have to give that a shot then. That great both are great movies, both are worth it. Well, um, I think uh, there's nothing else to do really except to slap a rating on this and see how we feel about it. Um, you know, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, I'll go ahead and go. Um, I think for me, I, I decided halfway through, I couldn't really decide on what I had either a four, four was the lowest I'd go, but I think I'm going to give it a 4.5 uh, just because, you know, there's not, there's the issues I have with it are not anything that ruins the integrity of the movie. Um, I think that when you have a movie as grand and as expansive as this, you know, there are certain levels and heights you have to hit to become something that is a five out of five masterpiece or something that can be revered, you know, for years to come. And not that this movie won't be that by most people, but I think I think 4.5 is definitely respectable enough. Um, it does so many things well, but it doesn't it doesn't reach the mark of masterpiece for me i know we like to use that term a lot um i wouldn't say it's a masterpiece but it's as close you know to me as far as from a general audience perspective i mean it's you can't ask for much more in a film if you're going to see it at the movie theater or just watching at home so i'm gonna give it a 4.5 yeah um i've thought about giving it a 4.5 but i think i'm gonna give it a four um just because you know some of the things we talked about earlier, uh, the, the plot holes it just kind of it always bothers me every time I watch it. And you know, I think we've talked about the third act gets a little messy, and that's just one of the things that just kind of holds it back from reaching that masterpiece level, like you said. Um, because you know, from a directing standpoint, it's it's got all the makings of a masterpiece, and from a rewatchability standpoint. For me, it has the makings of a masterpiece. Like, like I said earlier, it's a movie that I can watch anytime it's on. Um, I very much enjoy it. Never gets old, but uh, it does have those faults for me that just can hold it back. So, you know, it's four and a half is definitely a fair score, but I think that I'm I'm going to give it a four. Uh, but I I could. You know, if you ask me this again tomorrow, I might change my mind and give it a four and a half. But I think I'm I'm going to go with a four here. What about you, Cruz? Oh uh, yeah, I bounce between four and five because I don't you know I, I don't do the halves. But yeah, I bounce between four and five a lot in this movie. But I think is the more we talked about it, I'm going to give it a four out of five, which is still a great score. Obviously, and the fact that, like I said, this is ranked number six for me, and it's still a four out of five. Um, 
It's just, I think, I think it's the fact that everything about it is so great that it has just so much going for it. And it has like all the makings of like an all timer masterpiece for something that could just be fixed just by being more ambiguous. It's not even that they had to take it out. Just being a lot more ambiguous and a little less corny could have made it like an all timer. And I think it just sticks out more like a sore thumb because everything surrounding it is just like almost perfect. So, but still a great movie. I mean, I could watch this movie a million times. Same with what Jake said. I mean, I might wake up tomorrow and just go, I was wrong. It's a five out of five. But for right now, to give it a four out of five i feel the same way and that's kind of why i do half scores because i just i'm too indecisive when it comes to certain movies and you know like you just said i couldn't have put it better i think everything about it is great so the things that you don't think work as well stick out more Uh, I, i definitely could not have said it better and yeah i mean who knows i'll probably watch it again you know year from now, two years from now, and think, you know what? I was being jaded. But, yeah, definitely feel very similar to that. But, I think with that, we have to close the book on Interstellar. It's definitely a lengthy uh, lengthy review without the opening segment of what we knew going into it, that we'd probably need that extra time. So, I think uh, it's time. Jake has been teasing us, you know, all night. Uh, and into the next day about um, what his movie is going to be. And I'm very excited to hear what our next reviewed movie is going to be. So, Jake, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, What movie are we going to be watching this next week? Yeah, so I think that you guys are going to be surprised about this. Um, We have mentioned this director a few times on our podcast, but uh, we haven't, I don't think we've mentioned this movie at all. Um. So this is definitely going to be the oldest movie that we've watched. This movie came out in 1964. But without you know teasing you any longer, uh, we're going to watch a movie that's actually good from this director. And my choice is Dr. Strangelove or, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Stanley Kubrick's. Um, okay. 19, came out in 1964, black and white. Um, I'm, I don't, Matthew, I don't think you've seen it. Have you? No, you've, you've tried to get me to watch it over the years and I just have never set aside time for it. So I'm, I'm very excited. Um, after hearing you talk about it so much, that, that is very interesting. And I, I never, I did not predict that that was nowhere near where my, my barometer was for what you were going to pick. You know, I'm interested Cruz. you, you said that you made the statement that you thought you knew what direction I was going with my pick. So I'm interested to uh, see if you were close. I thought you would either pick The Shining or The Lighthouse. That's what I thought you were going to pick, one of the two. Oh, well, you should have I mean, been worried about was, picking The Shining. You were sort of. I, I, thought I, was, I, was, I was really more expecting you to pick The Lighthouse because you've talked about how Matthew needs to see it, which Matthew, you do need to see it. It's great. So yeah. I thought maybe. And also that's such a great movie for this podcast because it's another one of those movies where – like we could all watch it and then into it with different interpretations and they all be solid. But I did have a feeling maybe you might pick a Kubrick movie um, since every single movie is great. But <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad you picked this one though. I'm excited to watch it again. It's been so long since I've seen it. I've considered getting a Kubrick movie soon, but I'm not going to now because I'm going to give it a little bit of time to breathe. 
about to say that's another two weeks that we won't watch The Shining. So <laughs> the day, the the day, the deadline uh, keeps getting pushed back on that. But I, I'm I'm super pumped. I mean, I don't I don't know anything about this movie. I, I really don't. What you just told me is basically all I know. Um, so I'm I'm super excited. I, I cannot wait because I've only enjoy it because I haven't seen. I mean. At least I'm saying this right now. I could be wrong. I, I haven't seen that many of Kubrick's films. Um, I mean, I've seen The Shining and I've seen Full Metal Jacket. Um, but yeah, that may be it. I'm not sure. So I'm excited to expand my horizons a little bit. This is interesting because Kubrick kind of had a, a turn in the middle of his career, like a kind of a shift in his movies. And this was before he started making movies like shining and full metal jacket like this is very different from a lot of the movies he's really famous for not to say he's not famous for this but people who talk about a clockwork orange and eyes wide shut like all those movies kind of are stylistically similar this one's very different from a lot of the stuff he's done most really this movie this was the last he kind of of like that kind of style yeah and i also think this one kind of goes under the radar in terms of uh, the movies he's made. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll definitely talk about that. We kind of can't talk about it without kind of spoiling it a little bit. Yeah, we'll definitely true. talk about it in the next episode. But yeah, this will be very interesting to talk about because it is kind of a, a more underrated Kubrick movie. It's very different from a lot of the stuff he's done. Well, I'm very excited. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I think uh, I'm trying to see if it's available anywhere. We may have to rent it. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere uh, for free, but it's not streaming. Lucky for me, I own it, but I know it's not streaming because I went to check if any of his movies were streaming recently because I was strongly considering doing a Kubrick movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also have it on DVD. I think it's pretty cheap on Amazon. I think it's like $2 to rent. Yeah. It, that's never stopped me before. So, um, I'm looking forward to it. I may watch this one uh, sooner in the week um, than than I typically do. Uh, I usually wait till the day before or the day of, but I'm I'm, I'm excited. I, I I like watching new things. So, um, but guys, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Unless you guys have anything else you want to add right before um, we get out of here, I think that's about it. All right, guys. Well, sorry for that uh, breakup in you know the the uh, episode there, but technical difficulties happened. Uh, but we appreciate you supporting us and listening us, listening to us all the way through here. We hope you enjoyed this review. Hope you enjoyed uh, watching Interstellar with us. And you know, we'll see you next week. Definitely follow us on Twitter, like our page on Facebook. Continue to interact there um, if you're feeling if you're feeling like it. Uh, always give us movie suggestions if you want to. You know, you can text us in real life. Just uh, let us know uh, what you want to see us re- review, and we'll do it for you. So. Without further ado, I think that's going to do it for today. And again, we thank you so much for the support and we'll see you next time.